Welcome to episode 92 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason Nunn. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series on the World Bank, where we speak to the experts leading the bank's work in the region. In this episode, I speak to Dr Edith Carrico, the Senior Health Specialist with the World Bank in Port Moresby. Edith is a medical doctor with extensive experience working in health in Papua New Guinea, particularly in remote areas. Edith works closely with PNG's National Department of Health and other central line agencies to support the implementation of health policies that aim to improve and strengthen health service delivery in PNG. Edith is heavily involved in delivering support to the government of PNG as part of the World Bank's $20 million emergency package for PNG's COVID-19 response. In the episode, Edith talks about the state of PNG's healthcare system, including how years of neglect have culminated into a broken system in dire need of repair, and the work Edith and her counterparts are doing to fix it. We discuss access to contraception, specifically Edith's work promoting male contraceptive methods in PNG, including the difference between the attitudes of highland and coastal communities on the subject. Of course, we also discuss COVID-19 and the support the World Bank is providing to the government at this time. We've included relevant links in the show notes, along with recent articles from the Dev Policy blog on healthcare in Papua New Guinea. Next week, you'll hear from another World Bank expert, this time on the impact of the digital revolution in Fiji. Enjoy the episode. Edith, thanks for speaking with me. You started your career at the Paradise Private Hospital in Port Moresby, I believe, as a doctor. Can you tell me what led you to wanting to be a doctor? Well, hello, and thank you for having me on your show. Um, just a little correction there, I actually um, started at uh, Port Mosby Private Medical Hospital, but that doesn't, doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still a doctor. And interesting how you asked me why I decided to join the medical profession. Well, these things you really cannot tell the precise moment when you gain inspiration to walk the path. But I think, you know, coming from a culture and a family that that you know is quite close-knitted it it instills the attitude to care and I think that's where my inspiration stemmed from and everything that happened after was really through sheer determination and hard work I would say. Mm. So do you remember any particular moment where you realized that you were going to be a doctor or was it just that drive to help people and to care? Yes, I've, I've always cared about people, you know, always very sociable, um, wanting to know how people are doing. That was me, you know, growing up basically, but in terms of having to see some of those hardships within my communities, people having difficulty accessing services and, you know, I'm not beating my chest here, but I was, I, was, I was doing well in school to become a doctor and I could have been anything. I, of course, have other, other dreams to become other things like an accountant or a pilot perhaps, but I think this was something that I found I was having passion in, in terms of trying to find places where I could contribute to my community. Now, Papua New Guinea has a real shortage of doctors. There's approximately 500 doctors and less than 4,000 nurses for a population of more than 8 million people. What was it like to work in such an underfunded and overwhelmed industry? 
Yes, and you know, um, when I started off, it was, it's quite interesting that despite these figures, we still struggle with, you know, positions within our public system to cater for that. Um, as a resident, I had, I had, um, you know, basically waited for seven months for my first salary. So these are some issues, systemic issues that also are happening undercurrents of this low shortage of doctors. So it just worsens the picture for us. Um, I went straight into private practice because it wasn't clear for me at that stage how I could get into the public system. You had, you know, specialties taking up registrars, but it was difficult for a young resident to clearly see a pathway where they could be able to make choices. A lot of them are pushed into where gaps are. And it's important for us to make choices because, you know, when you make choices, you then go in with passion. And passion is what's needed to be used to be driven in this kind of working environment where you have to be multitasked, multi-skilled, you know, because in the front lines, you are the only person there most times. And, you know, as the years went by, I got exposed to different uh, frontline service delivery, not in the government, but through my NGO experience. And I could see, you know, as you say, it was so overwhelming um, where you had to, as a doctor, I had to start, you know, realizing the importance of not, not just nurses, but other non-health workers that were within the health sector as well in how we could all collaborate to deliver at the front line. I imagine you had a lot of people coming to you in desperate need for medical services. Yes, when I when I worked in with the NGO that I had experiences with in, in the front line, one thing I found was, you know, at one stage I was the only doctor in that whole organization working in um, 10 provinces. Um, so I had no choice but to use the nurses. And, you know, we had to fight policies within the country where you have to allow nurses to do some, you know, limited but very crucial, you know, surgical procedures that are cut out for doctors only. For instance, um, uh, vasectomies in family planning. Those are some things that, you know, you can, you can get doctors to put, let go to uh, very experienced nurses in that way. And these nurses have experiences in, over several years. They've been working in low resource settings. They know how to multitask, multi-skill, yet they are not recognized by a policy environment that's conducive for them. So let's unpack that further. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister Marape has admitted that the broken down health system and a total lack of necessary equipment is a result of years of neglect. Why has PNG's health system been allowed to deteriorate to such an extent? Now, that's an interesting question because I speak from my experience and very limited to some of those senior ones who have, you know, gone through decades of practicing this. But from how I see and my understanding of the systems, there's been a lot of changes in reforms and it's not given us time to, as uh, people working within the system, to be able to accommodate and to get used to the system to deliver. I say reforms, you know, we've gone from the organic law changes in how to decentralization of powers within the health sector, now into the PHA-run systems. 
yes, and a lot of these are run by doctors. I know for sure in our medical training, we don't learn systems in our medical school. <laughs> we learn how to be clinicians. We have limited intro into public health, but that doesn't go deep into how, you know, the government systems run, how funds flow to the front lines. And then you are thrown into a management position to be able to do that. A lot of have gone out of their way to, to learn these systems and gain, you know, extra qualifications in terms of management and are doing well, but are still struggling because you have governance systems that that look good on paper, but if you go into different provinces, their contexts are all different, different and how they apply them and accommodate them and make it work is very different. Everyone has their story and of challenges and of successes too. Yes, but do you think there are particular policies or decisions made by government or is it just a lack of funding that has led to this state of disrepair? I think there's more to it and, you know, that's more. there's more that meets the eye and it's not just through a systemic issue but it also comes down to workers and you know our values and clarification of our values attitudes of health workers generally these are doctors included um it, it also comes to how as leaders um of governance and accountability systems how we apply them whether we have the know-how or we don't or whether we have the humility to admit that we do not know those are some issues that you know that need to be ironed out and everyone's different their style of leadership and management is different and when you sit at a hierarchy and you look at all these systems they really depend on people to drive them so we, we have, for me, looking at the system, we have a good system. Our system is quite strong in terms of how we can deliver, but it comes down to the individuals that sit behind those systems day to day, the attitudes that you put into your work to make that, and that level of commitment you put in to make that system work for this country. So I think it's a whole host of factors. Yes, funding comes out clearly because a lot of noise is made about it, but there are other issues too that need to be brought to the table for discussion in terms of improving. I mean, it's undeniable that PNG has some major issues with disease control. What do you think can be done to create a functional healthcare system that meets the needs of the entire population? I think more people need to be, be brought to the discussion of this. You know, we just have a certain few that make policies that that decide how the system should be run. A lot of times our frontliners are left out of this discussion and they are the reality of the context in this regard. So we have to make make a system that's fit for purpose. And when we talk about fund flows, we need to be very sure that the nest at the most remote rural area must have the knowledge and know how to access these funds. Currently, there's a huge gap in how that flows and who signs the checks. And again, it comes back to if this person is even in office or not. So those kind of issues. We And when I say a whole host of factors, we're not just talking about the people that are in the system, but we're also doing succession planning. When this lot move out of the system, we have to get that carry on. If we don't have succession planning, then you have people leave and then there's a huge gap that gives opportunity for breakdown of the system before someone is able to come up to that standard of, you know, applying those skills at where it's needed. Yes. And I know that the shortage of nurses is often 
made up for with the community health workers or the CHWs who are referred to as the backbone of the rural healthcare system. Is that correct? That is true and correct. Um, there are a lot of talented and skilled community health workers out there. When I worked with the NGO, I was in charge of almost 90 uh, staff that included registered nurses and uh, the RNs and community health workers. And you know, you find that there are actually some CHWs, community health workers that do way better than registered nurses. But you know, and working in that NGO, I was able to play around with, you know, strategies in human resourcing. How can we make those who do better keep doing better? And so we were, you know, I, I had the opportunity to mix and match and have those matters inputted. And one thing I I did in my time was that if you were doing better as a CHW, it didn't matter whether you were registered nurse, you had to be recognized within the organization for your hard work. So we had CHWs that became trainer of trainers and were training registered nurses within there. And you could just see that passion take off, you know, you just don't put a lid on it because they just stand up to work. They, they're interested every day. They're excited about coming to work. And yeah, it's, it's exciting to watch really. I've heard anecdotally from a number of the NGOs that I work with in Papua New Guinea that in many instances, those community health workers are paid very little or in some cases are not paid at all. Is that true? Yes. And, you know, although they're in a system, there are some that, you know, almost volunteering. And you're right to say that because, you know, although the, the general statements of, yes, they get paid, they're on the payroll, you find that even though they're on the payroll, sometimes pay is very slow to get to them. Um, they can go, you know, they keep coming back into town to ask for those. And in the process of just looking for pay, you know, services are just amazing in terms of people achieving and um, getting services. So, yes, I would, I agree with that. I know of CHWs out there within the government system that still struggle to this day on getting, you know, regular salary for the work that they do. So effectively, PNG has a rural healthcare system that is built on underpaid or volunteer community health workers. Yeah, you could say that. We also have, you know, the lack of government services. So you see a lot of church involvement at that rural level. So, yeah, uh, in terms of, yeah. And then we know that churches or church run health services is funded by the, subsidized by the government, this, the component of the HR. And so if you see fund flows that are sluggish or slow within the government system, it's like the whole health system um, does not benefit because we have church run health services that is subsidized, uh, HR subsidized by government funding. So yeah, you can, you can imagine what's happening there. One of the big issues in PNG is the high unmet need for contraceptives among women and men, you could say, resulting in a very high fertility rate. When you were the service delivery director at Mari Stopes, you were responsible for bringing information about family planning options to villages in the Highlands region. What sort of reaction did you get when you were having those conversations? You know, when I, when I first started, it was the perception and assumption that, you know, the Highlands men would be more difficult to talk to than the coastal men. And I must say, 
it was different. <laughs> you know, that perception is so wrong. And I say that confidently because, you know, when, I, when we went up to the highlands talking to them, you know, the thing with communication in Papua New Guinea is the diversity of culture. And you have to understand fully your entry points into each community, not each province, each community. And you have to understand their community structure, their community governance, and not everyone has that formal, you know, how the government instills this hierarchy of leadership. Not everyone conforms to that in communities. In the highlands, you have the clans, the clan leaders that they listen to. On the coast, you have the church leaders that they listen to. So you have to be very, you know, you have to appreciative of that context before you enter. When we did the Highlands, um, you know, when learning from previous experiences where you talk so technical about, oh, you men have an option of vasectomy and you women have, you know, tubal ligation, all that. People look at you like, what the hell are you saying? Excuse my language, but yeah, they, they, they look at you so confused. Like, so we had to come back and, you know, health communication is so crucial in Papua New Guinea where we have so many languages and we don't invest a lot in that as a government and as, as leaders in health. Um, one thing I found successful was when we talked to the men in the highlands, instead of talking about family planning methods, we decided to have a conversation. So we talked about how they make decisions in their community. And one thing that came to the forefront was land land and how it gives status to a man and how man is is the decision maker so we use that and we use land and what we did is we made simple pictorial um illustrations of how land can be divided if you had five children compared to two children and that simple message hit home for them and we had a 300 percent increase in vasectomies in, in Goroka, in Kainantu alone. Men, men were lining up for vasectomies. They say it doesn't happen in PNG. I say it happens. I've seen it. Men lining up for vasectomies because they knew that as a decision maker, they had to be in charge of the size of the family. So they were telling their wives, no, no, you have to stop going for your family planning. I'll go and do this so I know that, that I have this number of children to cater and that will make me man through like I'm, I'm truly a man so those kind of stories and you know you come to the coast you have to start engaging with the churches because the churches will preach from their pulpit and it's one of the most informal gatherings of people you know where messages key messages in health can be given but once you get pastors and you know bishops making statements about family planning people will take it yeah so those are some examples of you know how how um, this unmet need was met. <laughs> and yeah, it's been, it was a really interesting journey. Very interesting. It's really interesting to hear you talk about shifting the responsibility for family planning from women to men. That's a really big change. And it's encouraging to hear that men have been so receptive to those conversations that you've had with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, we, it was also very interesting for me, I could see, you know, they, 
we have the hype of women empowerment in Papua New Guinea currently, and there's nothing more empowering than getting a woman to make reproductive choices for me. So when a woman is very confident and say decides for her own body, that is sheer empowerment in itself. It's very powerful. You see women, women in the rural areas crying and telling their stories about how they were helped, how now their husband loves them because he is able to, you know, to um to talk to her and communicate openly about how many children they have so the, those impacts we can't measure but the client or the the person who receives the services is the best person to describe it and that's important for service delivery i just want to pick up on the distinction between highland and coastal communities as you said earlier have you noticed differences in how those family planning conversations go depending on the part of Papua New Guinea that you're in? Yes, I mean, the thing with with the Highlands men is when you call for a meeting, they are there. They want to talk. They want to be heard. They will seriously tell you face, face really what they think, and you know, and it's good if you want to move on with the conversation. For the coastal, it takes a long while to bring them to the table. When they see family planning, they will keep sending their wives, their women leaders. It takes so long. And then when they finally come, they still won't talk. They sit down. They just listen. They don't say anything as it is. And then when they go out of the meeting in the small groups, that's when you hear them talking. So focus group discussion is important for people like, you know, with that kind of response where they're not um, confident to speak about these issues in, in a public gathering so yeah it for me it was the approach men's approach to discussing family planning that was very different and it of course translated into the action because we saw highlands men really coming out valuing their women and you know we have communities there that have values within the community structures about how women should be treated and it's very real in the highlands they value their women they, the women look after the pig, which is which is which is very important in in their cultural status. So, if they to give something of value for the woman to look after, it places that importance in what, how women are valued. And on the coast, you have women who, and I think what coastal cultures really see is that women women lead in you know everything. So they stand back when it's to dis- anything to discuss with family, they don't want to say anything. They just let the woman discuss about this. You only have a handful of men um, who come out, agents of change, you know, who come out and want to be open, religious leaders that come out and make statements. But yeah, that was kind of distinct in terms of how their approach to communication was for, for Highlands versus Um, the coast. Okay, let's talk some more about your job now. You are the senior health specialist at the World Bank in Papua New Guinea. What does your job entail? So uh, basically, I work with a team um, and uh, currently I oversee the uh, project of emergency TB project and uh, also looking after the COVID-19 response. in terms of the funding that was uh, given to the government of PNG for preparedness and response for COVID-19. 
Um, and apart from that, it's, you know, having to have that, uh, create that network within the health sector where we're able to provide technical support and assistance in terms of how uh, the Department of Health and its functions. Uh, we haven't, we just recently signed up for a new project called Impact Health. So basically looking at improvement of uh, frontline service delivery uh, that's, that the Department of Health is going to implement and it will implement in two provinces to start with. Um, so that's going to give us a foot into the provinces, whereas in the past we've just worked at national level. So working with provincial health authorities is going to be quite interesting in terms of how we see the system from national to local and how that system can can work. In your role, what sort of engagement are you having with the government of Papua New Guinea on health? So a lot, a lot currently is happening and, you know, <laughs> the World Bank had been absent for over 15 years before um, several years ago where we came in in terms of project and having action within uh, the National Department of Health. So it's been an interesting thing, having to get back in the TB space um, and then looking at not just the TB space, but that also gave us a light into the systems particularly for the health system. So we also have, you know, our, our I almost said PASA. <laughs> it's actually analytical work that's, that's happening on the side. It's providing evidence on where, you know, we should pay attention in terms of the work we do. And that's how Impact Health came about. It was really looking at how this, um, you know, the supply can meet the demand and how we can strike a balance at, at the front line in terms of efficient and eff effective service delivery. That's where it's at at the moment in terms of um, how, how the bank, particularly in the health sector, is trying to engage. We're also looking at, you know, the big interest within the bank, which is in human capital and particularly at nutrition. Um, how how we can bring that about, see convergence with other sectors um, like agriculture and looking at community development. So this is, this is stuff that are still very early in talks, but we're trying to see how it can translate on the ground with the piggyback of such thing as the impact health. Since the World Bank re-entered Papua New Guinea, have you seen a real willingness and motivation on the part of the government and, and the National Department of Health to really improve the healthcare system and to work with donors to do that? Yes, I mean, the re-entry has been tough um, in that, you know, this development uh, partner space is have have their key players already there in the likes of DFAT, the New Zealand government, the Chinese. You you have them there already. So, you know, coming in as a financier, it, it took a lot in terms of advocacy, awareness to get people to understand how the bank functions. Um, I can safely say that, you know, the, bank, the Department of Health is quite aware of how we function. They do appreciate how we come from the angle of system strengthening, looking at how financing uses the government systems to strengthen. There's a lot of um, 
backlash about from the public about loans being taken, but I think the, the department knows what it means to take a loan. It means that you use the money for purpose because it's a loan. And I think that that in itself is very, um, very, very rewarding in that people without knowing most times and trying to get to know where the money is going, you, you don't realize you actually are strengthening the system through, through being accountable, through ensuring that, you know, certain procurement requirements are met, all that. You, you just don't realize that. And then after a while, you, you, you're like, oh, hang on. You know, when we, did, when we did this procurement, we didn't realize we actually, you know, capacitated this unit within Department of Health. To, to now know what it means to have certain specifications for certain equipment. So those are some examples of how, how we are having an in in the system and supporting it to be strengthened. Do you think the government of PNG is allocating enough money internally to healthcare? Is funding for healthcare increasing? You know, this, this country, <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting in terms of what they allocate for. I, I think it's a two-way thing. It's how how um, how well informed the budget makers are in terms of priorities within health when they make a budget, and who 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 tells them that information to be well informed. So I think, and it's not just you know when I say that it's not just oh and DOH doesn't feed them enough information. I think it's everybody involved, and we all have a part to play. It's whether the nurse down at the front line acquits for you know the equipment that comes to head or supplies that comes to head, and then it's also an upward accountability to create good evidence, um, advocacy material to tell budget makers that this is what we need. So I think that needs to be strengthened. We need to have upward accountability as much as we have, you know, flow of funds going down to the front line until we are able to collate that accountability data. We are able to tell a story to the government of the day, irrespective of who's in charge, and be able to use this evidence to advocate at that level to say, yes, health sector needs X amount to make it work. And currently, we're not there yet. There are a lot of loopholes in terms of the data that is required to drive that level of advocacy. What kind of data is required? So we need things like, you know, how much, how much does a health center cost to run a year? If you ask anyone that question, they'll go, um, you know, so you, 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 need, you need those fixed amounts. And not all health centers, you know, can run on an estimated across the board amount. It's population based, it's, this is burden based, all those factors have to come in. For instance, you have more malaria on the coast than in the highlands. So, you, of course, there'll be more malaria drugs needed out on the coast. So, all that information everywhere, that's why I keep, the, you know, I say it's everyone's business in terms of playing your part to be able to get this right. And although we tend to point fingers at certain levels of the sector, I think we all have a part to play in making sure that this system works for us. You made a point earlier about health communications, and I think we'll finish with that in light of COVID. The communications that the government of Papua New Guinea has been sharing around COVID have been at times quite confusing. What level of understanding do you think the general population of PNG has about 
the implications of COVID and the, the preventative measures that are needed? I mean, how effective have communications about COVID been for the general population? Accuracy of information is there. I think it's the it's how it's communicated um, and how it's delivered to our people. Um, I stated earlier, you know, Papua New Guinea being um, a country of more than 800 languages, it's very crucial that, you know, health communication needs to be um, accurate in how it's delivered. Um, we're talking about key messages, um, the translation of this, whether it be into languages or it be into pictures, it's not happening. Um, it's happening in the urban centers, yes, um, but it, it's happening on radios, but how many of our rural people have radios to tune in and listen to or on TV to watch, for instance? So the different media platforms to have, have to be considered. We, we need, you know, when the elections happen in Papua New Guinea, ooh, they will reach the most remote rural, rural area with loud hailers and very expensive vehicles, even helicopters. So, you know, I, I don't see why we're not doing that now. And I think we need that level of advocacy if we really care for our people here in this country in terms of getting them prepared and also ensuring that they practice safe measures to protect themselves because we're not there as health workers we're not there where most people are so how can they be able to know that these are the symptoms to look out for these are the hygiene practices that needs to be. We also have issues with water and sanitation in our remote rural areas. These are issues that also need to come to the forefront. Issues with nutrition, keeping you know your body's feet. All that, you know, it's it's very overwhelming just talking about it. But yeah, it has to be discussed and messages, key messages need to be derived and delivered. <laughs> it's so interesting that you say that the government will pull out all the stops to communicate on elections. There'll be helicopters, there'll be whatever needs to happen to get that message across. But the same is just not being done for health. Is the same happening for all healthcare issues, for tuberculosis and other things? Is there just generally not enough communication on health issues? That's not enough. And, you know, a lot of our rural communications are done by the churches, are done by NGOs that work in those provinces. And you see, even like for malaria, you look at Rotary Against Malaria, they go far and wide. They walk distances just to deliver a net and tell people how to clean around their houses. So, I mean, this can happen. We just need to work collaboratively and, you know, be able to have a platform that collaborates all these wonderful efforts that are happening in silos. So we can't say it's not happening. It's happening, but there has to be some level of coordination where we know that we are getting the desired outcomes of what we intend to do. And we started this conversation talking about essential workers, nurses, doctors, community health workers. So let's finish by talking about them. Are they receiving enough support to deal with COVID or is more support needed for essential workers? You know, the issue of PPEs came up, everyone, you know, there's a lot of noise about it. But my, my concern is, do they all know how to use the PPE? and not just use, but dispose it? Do they all know how to do the necessary infection prevention controls within? And who watches them? And if they don't do it well, how is that corrected? 
I mean, those are, those are very specific measures that need to be considered, which are very important for protection of our health staff. We only have few to begin with. So, you know, the hard hit currently in a number of cases, our health workers. So what if, if the rest of the population gets sick and with the limited numbers, who is there to protect them? You know, people talk about hazard allowances, but our nurses or our health workers generally could be coming from a place where they need, they need some level of protection. And currently they can think of hazard allowances only. But as experts within those, those uh, specialties, one should be able to say, hey, this is how our infection prevention protocol should be. This is how they are enforced. And this is what happens when they are not enforced. That's not talked about. When they are not enforced, it's not discussed. And a lot of people think it's a blame thing, but it's not a blame thing. It's, we need to bring that out and discuss it so we can use that as points of improving where we can, so we don't make the same mistakes in terms of our infection prevention controls. So yes, our, our, our health workers need a lot of support mm -hmm. in that regard. Not just the salaries, you know, I had the other day, nurses are being kicked out of their homes because their families think that they are exposed to the virus within the Port Mosby General Hospital, within places that are containing uh, positive COVID cases. So some of them haven't seen their families for weeks on end. They just get a bag of clothes dropped off and then that's it. They're told to fend for themselves. Some are still looking for accommodation or they have accommodation, but it's only two weeks long. So, you know, if, if you don't have that support for your health workers, how do you expect them to fight this common enemy that we have? So, yeah, this is the state we're at. And it's sad. And, you know, I know there are people out there who are trying the best they can to do what we can within this constrained environment to, to provide. But I think there's room for improvement. And there's a lot of room to do better for our people. There is. I absolutely agree. Thanks, Edith, for your time. Mm -hmm.